0: And gospel with Dr. Helesta Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. And I'm entitling this lesson, Footsteps to the Coffin. So let's take a look at this. And our working text here for the the footsteps has pretty much been the song of songs, the song of songs. And I'm going to go back and scoop up something that we've done before. So this should sound familiar. But then I want to take this little snippet, the, the twinning or the pairs concept that we've done before, and I want to put it into a new context and see if we can derive a little more transformation out of that. So here's our working text. It's a Song of Songs, chapter four, verses one through five. And we're condensing part of it just so we can focus on the parts I'd like to address today. But here's how it reads. It says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. Your teeth flock of newborn sheep which have come up from the watering place, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is beautiful. Your temples are like a slice of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. So remember the twinning or or the pairs that that we went over before. And in this little passage, you can see either direct or hinted types of pairs. You can tell from the context of this this excerpt that we're supposed to pay attention to things that appear in pairs, like your eyes. Well, it even starts with a repetition. How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are well, there's a pair of beautifuls right there, right up front. Um, You know, beautiful, beautiful. And he says, your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Well, eyes come in pairs. And then he goes on, he says, um, he compares her to a flock of goats, and then to a flock of sheep, two flocks. And then he says, these sheep have twins. And then he goes on and describes the lips. Of course, we know that we have two lips, we have a set, we have a pair of lips. He goes on and describes a slice of pomegranate. And if you've ever seen, you know, if you've ever walked down Ben Yehuda Street in Jerusalem, and you've looked at all the little juice stands, then you have seen those slices of pomegranates, sometimes in a storefront, They'll even arrange them with the pomegranate seeds facing out. You have half a pomegranate, half a pomegranate. And so as they arrange them beautifully with the with the pips of the pomegranate facing outward, then um, it just looks like a beautiful ruby red um, window. And, and of course, there's it, it, has, it shares a similarity with something else. It goes on and it says, your two breasts are like two fonts. Twins of a gazelle. And if you'll remember way back when we were studying Song Psalm of Psalms, as we looked at this imagery, we realized that the two breasts being referred to here referred to the two tablets of the Torah. They also said there's a significance here that applies to Moses and Aaron together as kind of the twin representatives of the Torah, messengers of the Holy One. And so it's not quite as racy as it sounds if we read it in isolation. But when we start studying and and putting things, you know, into the context of the wordplay or the hints, then often we can go back and we say, oh, I see. I see what this is talking about. But there's no doubt as we look through these verses right here that the emphasis is on pairs. The emphasis is on pairs, And it started out with the doves how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Beautiful, beautiful. And the first is the eyes like doves, eyes like doves behind your veil. So let's look at these doves. Let's review this right here. It's a comment in the Midrash Rabbah to the Song of Songs, and it's referring to Isaiah 29, 23, Isaiah 29, 23. And of course, these These observations are written down by people who have been observing the behavior of doves for thousands of years. From the time that doves were established as a permissible sacrifice or offering, especially for the poor people, then, of course, they would not only commit themselves to trapping doves for those sacrifices, but indeed beginning to raise those doves to, I don't know if you could say domesticate, but like chickens, you know, they would begin to raise the doves to have on hand for the the tabernacle and the temple sacrifices. So they have been careful observers of dove behavior. And so here's what they write about the doves. They say there is a type of dove that they feed it, and then its fellows smell it and come to it in its nest. Similarly, When a teacher sits and teaches, many people convert at that time. And so we say, well, now, where are they coming up with this? How are they connecting the doves to this particular verse in Isaiah 29 23. And the the key text there is going to be when he sees his children. And we'll look at the whole verse too. We're not going to just look at that little snippet of it. We're going to look at the whole verse. When he sees his children, and this is going to be describing Jacob. When Jacob sees his children, It says, what is written after those words? It says, those of a misguided spirit will attain understanding. And there is a a principle in the prophets where those who are returning to the covenant, those who are returning to Israel, those who are returning to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, they are described as doves returning to their lattices or doves returning to the dove coats. And the question is asked, who are these? Who are these flying like doves to their lattices? So we see there's an equivalency here of the doves of Israel being compared to the children of Yaakov, the children of Jacob. In this process, there's going to be a type of dove, they say. And I, I want you to think now, if you're not already, you probably are already thinking of it. It's probably already crossed your mind. Think of Yeshua coming out of the immersion of water. And it's, it says the Holy Spirit, the Racha it descended in a form like a dove. And everybody heard this voice say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, come sit at his feet. Listen, he's going to tell you something. And if you were of a misguided spirit, then you can attain understanding if you will come to this dove, to this sacrifice, to this poor man's sacrifice. Because typically a dove um, was permitted to a person who did not have enough money to bring something like a lamb or a goat or an ox. Uh, The doves were the the cheapest of all the sacrifices, uh, at least the animal sacrifices. And so for a poor person... To come and to sit at the feet of Yeshua. He's saying if they are of a misguided spirit, they can attain understanding. They can actually attain riches if they will come and listen to Him. And so, again, we say, well, why are they saying when, when these um, other doves come to this dove and they smell it, right? why would these doves over here be attracted to the smell of this dove? In other words, it's going to be the same thing. Just as Yeshua appeared to us in flesh and blood, he came to save flesh and blood. And so those of his kind were attracted to him. They, in a sense, smelled him. Because smell in Hebrew is reach. And you can hear a word you already know, which is Ruach, ruach having the same root word. So spirit or ruach is similar to raach or s- smell. In other words, smelling is actually how Isaiah says that King Messiah will judge. It says he will not judge by the sight of his eyes or by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge for the needy. And that word there's going to be raach with the sense of smell. He will judge. It's saying that through the power of His Spirit, He's going to judge. He's not going to believe what He sees in the natural realm. He's not going to hear what only a natural ear can hear. But with spiritual eyes and with spiritual ears, He's going to engage this judgment. And so, as we sit at the the feet of this dove of this teacher Yeshua, who is the Father's beloved he will emit an odor. There will be a spirit about him. And that odor that that he emits, that spirit is going to attract those who want to feed upon his words. They don't just want the words, but they want the spirit behind the words. So it's, it's very kind of almost poetic, the way that they put these words together to help describe, as it kind of takes us from Isaiah, where it talks about how uh, Messiah will judge, all the way to this incident where the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and then takes us, you know, to those places where Yeshua sat and taught, uh, where the crowds would come and listen to him teach, or when he would draw aside and he would instruct his disciples, you know, in a more intimate way. Uh, He would take the smaller groups because sometimes he would say, you know, guys, I teach in parables because there's some people I don't want to understand what I'm saying. I want you to sniff this out. I want to make sure that you're of like kind and like mind with me, because those who are only seeing with natural eyes or hearing with natural ears, they're going to miss the smell of the spirit in these words that I'm feeding you, that I'm teaching you. And so he's here to build a house. He, Like he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. What is the house for? It's because there's a promise of children. A wise woman builds her house because children are coming. And this is, you know, connected to what it's saying here in Isaiah 29, you know, when Jacob sees his children, he is going to realize that many of a misguided spirit will be able to attain understanding that there will be not just this great teacher, Messiah Yeshua, but at a future time, there will be teachers. And those teachers, they will also teach with the power of the Holy Spirit. And those who have been misguided or who've been critical of spiritual things, they will have an opportunity at that time to gain understanding, which is going to enlarge the house. They can return. They can be saved is part of this process. So here's the whole verse. Um, It's actually three, I guess. Isaiah 29, 22 through 24. Therefore, this is what the Lord who redeemed Abraham says concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob will not be ashamed now, nor will his face turn pale now. The implication there is that at some point he was ashamed and his face did turn pale from shame because he saw how his children were behaving. So if you have children or grandchildren and you've ever witnessed them misbehaving in a pretty terrible way, you know exactly what this is talking about. But here's the transformation. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth, and those who criticize will accept instruction. So these are the doves coming home. This prophecy is of a time when Jacob will see his children, and even though they have been embarrassing him up to this point with their behavior, with their believing lies, now they'll know the truth, and he won't be ashamed anymore or because they have been critical of the truth, or critical of those trying to walk in the truth, now they will be humbled and they will begin to accept instruction. And when Yaakov sees that, his face won't be turning pale anymore because the children, these doves are beginning to fly home. They're beginning to figure out where home is. So in summary, if the doves of Israel are feeding on the word, if they're practicing the commandments, if they're practicing the mitzvot, and they're practicing it with joy in their suffering, why do we have to have suffering? And why do we have to be joyful when we're suffering? Well, again, if if we go back to first mentions of things, often we'll get a clue. And if we look back at the dove after the flood, Noah sends out a, a dove. She can't find any place to rest the sole of her foot. There's no rest. But then he sends her out the second time and she comes back with an olive branch and an olive tree, the, the olive itself, the, the leaf itself, it's bitter. It's extremely bitter. Now, the oil of it can be very, um, you know, delicious, fragrant. It's it's just very pleasing. But how do you get the oil? You don't get the oil from just picking a leaf. You don't get the oil from just picking a branch there's a lot of work involved. There's a lot of crushing involved. If you're going to extract this beautiful ointment out of the olive, and that's where I want to go, how would we get the beautiful ointment out of this bitter olive? But when this process begins, the world is going to start to take notice. They're going to notice the the appearance of these flocks, right? He, he goes on dove's eyes, and then we get down here. He's like, okay, a flock of goats, a flock of sheep, and there's going to be a twinning or a, a pairing that is associated with them. And so he says, when these children begin to be instructed, when they stop criticizing the things of truth, when they humble themselves to receive the truth, when they're willing to do the suffering that goes with accepting and walking in the truth, because there is no truth you can walk in that won't cause suffering, not in the world today. And when Meshua comes, no, but until then, it will be very bitter and painful to keep the commandments of Adonai. Uh, It it will bring suffering. It'll be a bitter olive. But in that crushing, as, as you're crushed from this return What's going to come out of you is going to be a beautiful ointment, a fragrant ointment. And he can even add spices to you. Remember, uh, olive oil is a carrier oil. And so he can add different spices into that carrier oil. And we'll, we'll each have this unique odor of obedience. And so as we flock to King Messiah, as we begin to see Messiah Yeshua in the context of the living word, all of it, not just what started with Matthew one, all of it from Genesis one. we have accepted King Messiah as the living word. We're beginning to flock to him. We're beginning to return to the word from the beginning. And what will happen is there will be other doves out there in the world who were just like we were. They were critical and uninstructed. They will watch us and see what we're doing. And if they can sniff it, If they can sniff the obedience on us, and where did we sniff it? We sniffed the obedience on Yeshua, a completely obedient suffering servant. And we began to flock to him. When they see us suffering with joy, I think there's going to be way more doves who can be attracted to us, who can then walk with us to the palace of King Messiah which is said to hover just above the land of Israel. So I have no doubt that something was happening in the Garden of Eden, in the third heaven, when Yeshua came up out of that water and the Spirit descended like a dove. I have no doubt that something awesome was happening just above their heads, of everybody watching, that there was activity up in that realm, that there was celebration up in that realm. And imagine the celebration. When one of us turns and we kind of sniff out a commandment and we say, hey, you know what? I think I i should have been doing that. Let me go learn about that. Let me be instructed in that. Let me not be critical of that. Let me follow. Let me follow Yeshua. Or you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have been doing that. It's starting to smell a little stinky. And so we turn away from doing that stinky thing because we're prohibited from doing that with the commandments. And instead, we begin to sniff out the odor of obedience and be instructed in that, right? So there's a a twinning in pairs context to all this with the doves. Remember, zagot in Hebrew, it means pairs. And often in scripture, you had ministries of pairs. I think I challenged you a few weeks ago, come up with as many pairs as you can remember out of scripture because this is what the, the sages teach us about the pairs and the twins. It's not just the people like the Elijahs and the Elishas or the John the Baptist and the Yeshua's. They say the mitzvot often work in pairs or twins, just like there were two tablets of the Torah. They say that with this pair and twinning concept, the second mitzvah will complement the first. It says, where the true beauty of performing the first mitzvah emerges only when the second one is done as well. In other words, the first commandment, if you'll be obedient to that one, then it opens the way for you to be able to keep the second one. And this is what they say of the doves, that they do tend to lay pairs of eggs in each month of the year, with the exception of Adar. And it says they tend to mate for life. So they tend to be pairs for life. They tend to lay pairs of eggs. And so in terms of our mitzvot, we want to keep our eyes open for that too. As we keep a commandment, have we just opened the way to a second commandment? Well, here's another pair. He says your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep which have come up from their watering place, all of which bear twins and not one among them has lost her young. So they bear twins, that part we get, but imagine your teeth, you have upper teeth and you have lower teeth. You have two sets of teeth, right? So um, you will often see twin testimonies, like the twin tablets of the testimony, the, the, like the breast that it's describing in the Song of Song. Uh, like Moses and Aaron, how Aaron was able to open the way for Moses, even though Moses didn't think he could speak well, Aaron opens the way for him. And he finds his voice before Pharaoh. And then we've got another idea uh, for twins that maybe we never thought about, or maybe we never noticed it, but Genesis thirty-seven thirty-five. Uh, remember when Joseph disappears, Yaakov is led to believe that he's been killed by wild beasts, and in a sense he has, but he refuses to stop mourning. You know, mourning is, is thought to be, you know, seven days, 30 days, uh, a year. But here's what Yaakov says about Yosef, uh, that all his sons and all his daughters got up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. And so his father was Isaac. So his father Isaac wept for Jacob. And Jacob says, I'm not going to stop mourning. But what's missing, it's not really missing. It's actually there. This is one of those cases. Sometimes something just seems to be missing, but you have to understand that it's there. It's called an ellipsis Here there's no ellipsis. It's specifically stated. It says, then all his sons and all his daughters. Well, we all know about Dina. She's perhaps the only one that's mentioned with a story. But right here, there are multiple daughters. And you say, well, that's probably daughters-in-law. Well, where do they come from? We don't know. We don't know specifically where the, the 12 tribes got their wives except you know, for a couple of them. We know where Judah got his wife. We know where Joseph got his wife. But for the rest of them, we're a little bit in the dark as to, you know, who they married. But the tradition, the Jewish tradition, as they're reading this and saying, okay, we have to accept this at face value, there were more daughters born to Jacob. So they believe that for each of the 12 sons, there was a corresponding twin. And perhaps Dina was a twin to one of the others. You know, I think the greatest candidates there, uh, even though it seems like she's born at the end of a, you know, of a line of brothers. Sometimes chronology is not exact with scripture. It's it's not trying to be exact. It's trying to make a point sometimes. But it, it could be that maybe Dina was a twin to Shimon or Levi because those two brothers are particularly upset. Uh, about the treatment that she has received. We don't know. We don't know for sure if she was a twin or wasn't a twin. Something to think about. But the idea that the brothers um, had a twin sister each time, that's also something to think about. Who were these daughters? And so our song goes on. It says, your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is beautiful. Beautiful. So there's a strange word for mouth there. It's not pit like we would expect it to be. We've got the twin lips, it's like we had the twin teeth, but the mouth is a midbar. A midbar which means a wilderness. It says your mouth or in the wordplay and your wilderness is beautiful. So if we put this back into the context of what is known about the wilderness, the midbar, we know that uh, Israel came out of Egypt. And they spent 40 years in the wilderness and it's as though they were being beautified. Uh, There was a lot of dead stuff getting cut off. There was a lot of Egyptian stuff that, that had to be removed and left in the desert. But by the time that the children of Israel come up from the wilderness to cross over to their inheritance in Israel, they have been beautified. We know that that is a generation of obedience and so they're fitting very much the description here of the Song of Songs. They are beautiful in their obedience. And that obedience even lasts into the generation of Joshua, Yoshua. So from the, the play on word, we can derive a significance, a prophetic significance, that this beautiful beloved is a, a description of Israel. And she's ascending from the wilderness to her inheritance in the land. And as we have studied in the footsteps of Messiah, we know that there was an Egypt and wilderness past, but the prophets talk about an Egypt and a wilderness that would occur in the future, which we are now in. We are now in the wilderness of the peoples. It's called the wilderness of Egypt or the wilderness of the peoples. That's the wilderness we're in again. So we have a chance where we are now in this wilderness to become beautified, like this beloved. Yes, we're in the meat bar, but our mouths, our lips and our mouth, this experience, it can be part of the process of beautifying us and turning us into a generation of obedience to the commandments, being a people who can sniff out the pleasant aroma of obedience. So as Israel emerges from the wilderness with King Messiah Yeshua, Just like the the generation coming up with Joshua after Moses, King Messiah will be at our head. And, you know, with that, it's we're turned into an army. We become very powerful because of the transformation of obedience. If you want an army to lose power, then let them stop obeying commands, right? Any military person will tell you that. When an army stops obeying direct orders... Then there's no discipline, there's no morale, there's no nothing. The army will disintegrate. It'll turn on itself. The enemy doesn't even have to attack, it'll just turn on itself. But those who obey the commandments, those who proclaim the word, those who have been transformed from being uninstructed, critical people, and now they are instructed in the word, and they are not critical of truth. Now they become a mighty army because now they know how to obey a direct order. They know how to obey a commandment. Mm-hmm. It, it makes them cohesive. And uh, Psalm sixty-eight eleven describes this army. Uh, because remember in Song of Songs, the Israel is referred to as uh, like a bride, a woman. Well, here's what Psalm 68, 11 and 12 say. It says, the Lord gives the command, the women who proclaim good news are a great army. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoils. In other words, no matter what your role is in this army of obedience, whether you're actively out there chasing down the enemy, or whether you're taking care of the home front so that the enemy doesn't creep into the the house, you're part of a mighty army of obedience, and so he's saying, ladies, proclaim that good news, proclaim that gospel. Remember when they came up from the wilderness, the daughters of Zelophehad had to come back to Moses and the judges and say, hey, remember us? We want an inheritance in the land. We don't have brothers. We don't have a father. But we are women of the Torah. We are part of this mighty army and we want our inheritance. And The Holy One tells Moses what they're saying is right. You need to listen to these women. They're proclaiming good news. They are part of this great army, this beloved bride that is going up from the wilderness to take back her inheritance. These these women are going to be terrifying to armies of darkness. Imagine being a Canaanite and seeing these ladies come at you. No, they wouldn't want to, you don't want to encounter a lady that is that powerful in the word because they were so powerful In their scholarship of the Torah, that they had acquired this instruction, the humility to receive the engrafted word, that um, they were not critical of the word, but instead incorporated the word. They learned how to apply the word. Now they're powerful. Now a Canaanite is going to be terrified. And that's what your obedience does. Remember, people smell it. People smell obedience. It's a spiritual thing. So these women, they they were the, you know, most beautiful smelling ladies. Probably uh, after 40 years in the wilderness, they were smelling pretty good because they were proclaiming the word. And now do you see where the twins and the pairs are going at this point? Uh, kind of using some of the understanding of, you know, that traditionally that it's believed that the 12 tribes had those uh, brothers had 12 twins, that there is a a power of the spirit that is associated with women. And so in Acts chapter 2, we can see a continuation of this. Remember, Yeshua didn't come to keep us under the curse. He came to restore us. He came to instruct us. Uh, He came to call us back to his nest He's he's like the mama bird that says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you, but you would not." But now the women are interested in gathering with him, with their with their male counterparts. And in Acts chapter two, when the Spirit falls, and remember, Spirit is something you sniff out. It's a, it's a different sense. Peter's not confused, and. Peter has had a real turnaround. If you think of really, you know, some of the last things we heard about Peter in the Gospels is that when the women went to the tomb and realized that Yeshua had resurrected, uh, Yeshua says, go tell my disciples and Peter, <laughs> poor Peter, but the women, they go tell him that Yeshua's resurrected. We've seen it. we talked to him. And it said to the men, it seemed as though they were speaking foolishness imagine that women speaking foolishness when they're proclaiming the good news well when you proclaim the good news you're doing exactly what isaiah prophesied you are proclaiming the truth and so peter who had been a little critical of them at the beginning he's had a real transformation so peter's the one who stands up and we can connect you know the events of acts 114 to Acts 2 even though it's two separate settings Acts 14 says all of these were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer along with the women and Miriam the mother of Yeshua and with his brothers so it tells you that the women who followed Yeshua and who believed on Yeshua they had joined the the male disciples and they were all devoting themselves with one mind to prayer and this is not usual today. Men don't pray with women. If you've ever been to a synagogue, if you've ever been to the hotel, men and women are separated. But if you look in acts one fourteen, they're praying together. They're devoting themselves with one mind to prayer. It says, along with the women. And it takes the the opportunity to point that out because the assumption if if you read this, you know from a Jewish mindset, is that they would have been praying separately. Because women are seen as a distraction to men in prayer. Well, these men apparently are are no longer distracted by women praying with one mind. And you know, women typically they they're a little quieter when they pray. It's it's much uh, you know that's the whole pattern of the Amidah is based on Hannah praying where it was just her lips moving. I mean, we don't know exactly how that looked, but we know that there was a unity. And so in Acts chapter two. At Shavuot, when they're praying in the temple at the house, the house is a, a euphemism for the temple. All of a sudden the spirit falls. Remember, Reach, it's something you sniff out. It's the odor of obedience. It's the odor of the good news. It's the odor of the commandments. It's the odor of the mighty deeds of Adonai. And uh, here's what it says in Acts 2:11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? Hmm. They don't know what that means. What was so amazing about it? The fact that they were all hearing of the deeds of Elohim in their own tongue? Or was there something else that was even more remarkable in that day and time? Well, others were jeering and saying they're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the other 11, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, know this and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you assume, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what has been spoken through the prophet Yoel. So his first explanation, now he'll go on, he'll hit some other bullet points here to sum up what's happening. But the first thing he wants them to understand as they're witnessing what they witness is this right here. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. You're going to be able to sniff it out. You're going to be instructed. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and on your sons and your daughters. They will prophesy Your young men will see visions. Your old men will have dreams. And even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. They will. Who? Everybody just named. Sons and daughters. Young and old. Male and female. They will all prophesy. And he says, I will display wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? So most of those signs in the second part of that introduction he gives from Yoel Have not been completely fulfilled yet. The blood, the fire, and the smoke, that day is coming. So what can we tell from this? Peter's still prophesying. And he's saying, the thing that you're seeing right now with these both men and women prophesying, praying in public together, proclaiming the good news together, this is kicking off that era, which will Eventually come to a close um, and usher in a new kingdom with the blood, the fire, and the smoke. And there's a twin, there's a pair that that pops up in a very significant place. Because it's not like Yeshua is just telling Martha, you know what, Martha? Miriam is sitting here at my feet, learning with my male students, and serving people is good. But Miriam has chosen the better thing. She's chosen to hear the word and to be instructed in the word instead of having a critical spirit. Imagine if, if that was in Martha's mind, if that passage from Isaiah was in her mind, you know, about the children coming home. And she has the context for somebody being instructed who wouldn't have been instructed or who refused to be instructed. And somebody who would have a critical spirit would no longer have a critical spirit. That that would have been a, a unstated rebuke if he was drawing her attention to that particular passage. And, you know, knowing how little is really written about women in places of pl- public prayer and prophecy and proclaiming the word. I'm sure that Martha knew this, and I'm sure it had a profound effect on her, her because I'm Convinced she was right here in this group. I think that was a a life changing moment for her, not just for Miriam. I think it was a life changing moment for Martha. And uh, I believe she was just praying and prophesying and proclaiming the good news right here in Acts chapter 2 with the rest of them. So let's go on. It says, How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil, your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. All right, so like I said, we're going to have this in at least two parts, maybe three. Next week, we'll probably get into not just the hair like a flock of goats. I want to go back and look at the women who anointed Yeshua with the oil. I want to look at the one who washed his feet with her hair. And I want to look at the one who anointed his head with oil because we we pretty much have two alabaster boxes and the fact that the, the vial was alabaster is going to make a difference. Uh, it's going to have a context for us. It's, it's going to be exactly like the verse says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. And then it, it does another little twin here. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. Well, a veil holds back hair. It's, it can take different forms. In Hebrew, it's simma. But typically, it's going to restrain your hair in some way. How that would look, you know, in modern times, maybe it's just a hair clip. You know, it's something that holds your hair back. In ancient times, there, you know, there would have been more hair that would have been held back with the veil. But he's saying, you know what, even though you have this veil on to hold back to restrain your hair, it's still very beautiful behind that veil. We want to unpack that. But first of all, we've got to figure out where Mount Gilad is. Well, we know where it is, of course. It's it's up in the north. It's up in the heights, up you know around the area we would know as the Golan Heights. It's a high elevation. So the idea of goats coming down from Mount Gilad, and of course there's the balm of Gilead too, the balm of Gilad. Uh, so there's uh, another significance for us that is like a medicine. That these goats uh, are either bearing healing balm, or they have been healed with this balm of Gilad. So they're they're streaming down. And uh, again, that that Hebrew word for descended in modern Hebrew is used to for surfing. It's just, and ever since I read that, I thought like, all I can see right here is a flock of goats surfing down a mountain. <laughs> But that's modern Hebrew. They didn't have surfing goats back when the Song was written that I know of. Who knows? Who knows what shepherds did to their goats on the mountains? Maybe they, they made surfboards for them back then. But we want to ask ourselves, yes, there is a Mount Gilad, a literal Mount Gilad. But is there another significance to Mount Gilad? Is it possibly pointing us to another mountain in terms of symbolism? And I think it is. So we can go back again to where words are used before. And for this particular word, we want to go back to Genesis 31, 48. And this, remember, is where Levon has chased Jacob and his family. Jacob's trying to return home. And after three days, somebody lets Levon know, uh, you know, Jacob and his family are gone. And they've got a three-day head start. Well, Levon is traveling much lighter and he chases them down. And so uh, he catches up to them at a place that he names Galeed. And here's what he says you know, they, they mound up the rocks at that place. And he says, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galeed. Galeed. Now, Galeed is uh, spelled the same as Gilad, it's just voweled differently. You can look at the vowels and tell. But it's spelled the same, Galat Gilat. So you just break the word in two into its two parts, and you'll have Gal. And you're familiar with Gal because you've heard of the Galilee. Galilee, Gal. Um, it means a mound, a hill, or a heap, or kind of like to go round and round. Like modern Hebrew, um, Galgal is a tire because the tire goes round and round. So it's a, it has a circular. Sort of connotation to it. And then the other part of the word, Gal Aid. Aid is a witness. So the hint here is to a mound, a hill, a heap, a mountain, a witness. If we put those two understandings together, then the Gal will symbolize the place where a covenant is made, just based on the context that Ivan has created right here. And then Because it's circular, the aid, the witness, or the testimony will continue to roll to future generations. It just rolls and rolls and rolls. Galgal. So Levon is saying, My descendants and your descendants, Yaakov, we will respect this mountain, this this mound of rocks, because it's leaving a testimony here to our future generations that we will not cross back and forth to attack one another. Uh, So it became really a place of covenant. They have the meal and so forth, so they're making a covenant right here at Gilad or uh, uh, an ongoing covenant to their descendants. So look at this right here. Remember, um, associated with Mount Sinai is going to be an affirmation of a covenant between the beloved Israel and the Holy One of Israel. And so the the greatest commandment that they received was Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel Adonai, our God, Adonai is one. Well, if you look at the Hebrew text here, you can see that two of those letters, the two of those Hebrew letters in that phrase are oversized as they're written. They stand out. You see the ayin. Is large in Shema, and you see that the Dalit is large in Echad. Well, if you put those two together, it spells Ed, Ed, witness, testimony. So Shma Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, you can sum all that up that it is a testimony. And that's why, you know, when we rise up, when we lie down at night, if possible, the last thing out of your mouth before you you cross over should be this, the Shma it's kind of an identity thing it's, it's it gets hardwired into you after a while so the significance of it is that this statement of the shema affirming that Adonai is Elohim he is the creator there is none over him there is none other than him and yeshua said this is the greatest commandment so it continues to be a witness to the covenant generation after generation it just keeps rolling So if the the Shema is being passed down from generation to generation, is if it's rolling on through as a witness, then we can connect it directly to Mount Sinai, where they received the commandments, where they became the witnesses of the commandments. So a flock of goats coming down from Mount Gilad, we can say is like a flock of goats, surfing, (laughs) a flock of goats descending in big numbers, from an ongoing testimony of witness that the children of Jacob, remember, it says he will no longer turn pale. He will no longer be ashamed when he sees his children misbehaving and refusing to obey the commandments, that he, he can now be proud of his children because now they're fulfilling their purpose, which is to be a witness to the, the covenant, to the heap, to the mound, to the mountain of covenant, generation after generation, uh, lidor, lidor, right from generation to generation. That's the plan. So next week, this is where we're going to pick up. I want I'm going to go back to the veil in the Song of Songs. Why are her eyes so beautiful behind her veil? There's lots to learn. Remember, veil tma. It means to restrain or to hold together. And if you think of what the covenant does. It restrains us from evil, and it holds us together as a people. The Torah restrains us from evil, and it holds us together as a people. So that's where I want to pick up next week. And like I say, it it might take us more than two weeks to get through this particular, you know, I guess you'd call it a mini lesson. But I think it's important as we're looking for the footsteps of Messiah, especially as we begin to break down the woman who's washing Yeshua's feet with her hair. Because the hair does factor into the Song of Songs, it's, it's very important here in chapter four. Her hair behind her veil. What is the symbolism of hair? What is the significance of hair? Why is it that in one, we've we got two ladies pretty much, I'm going to assume that the other one also has an alabaster box, but they both have a vial or a box of perfume or ointment. Remember what we said about the olive oil? The only way you're going to get that olive oil is through crushing. It's going to be bitter at first but then the holy one he, he acknowledges the steps of sacrifice and suffering that we take and it he begins to add the perfumes and the spices to that ointment of suffering and then we break it open i want to look at what that means because again it may be that the coffin that we submit to is the very coffin from which we resurrect you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.